Ryan, are you there? Hello, Michael. Hello, Internet. Hello, world. Hello, worldwide Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Buck and Sack Show. It is Thursday night. Normally we do Tuesday. Thursday this week, Ryan, happy birthday to your wife, Kim, whose birthday was on yes. Tuesday. And that's the reason for pushing it back a couple days. Uh, it's, two, it's Thursday night, September 19th, 2019, 8.40 on the West Coast. I'm in San Francisco. Ryan, how's Portland? Uh, it has been very wet the last week or so, so it's, uh, it's would good. You, would you it's say that it's very been dry dank? Summer. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Okay, that's, I uh, like I like dank. <laughs> it has been a little <laughs> bit dank, but yeah, uh, great birthday with my wife. Got a little, a few more birthday activities planned uh, for this weekend, but uh, excited for where we are on the sports calendar as well. Football mm-hmm. in full swing. Um, Shouts to Bruce Bochy right off the top. It's not my good of the week, but 2,000 wins, a hell of an accomplishment here, here. For, uh, for the giant skipper. And uh, ba- baseball playoff races are heating up. The wild card races are awesome in uh, both the AL and the NL. So lots to get to, man. It's really, we're right here, I think. You know, fall is officially on Saturday and a great slate of college games to go with it. Uh, and then, as you said, the baseball playoffs about to start. For me, I think this is the best sports time of the whole year, the next five or six weeks. So let's get right into it. What's your good of the week? So my good of the week is the movement towards pay-for-play endorsements in college football. Yep. And for, for those who haven't been following, there's been some recent legislation passed in a couple states, first in California, then in South Carolina and New York, and without getting into kind of the language of these bills, essentially it begins to pave the way for athletes being uh, not being able to be denied uh, endorsements for their on-field performance. So um, how this gets administered will, I think, come to light over the course of maybe years. But I think we're, we're just at the very tip of the iceberg of starting to lay the groundwork for getting some of these athletes paid a little bit. And there's a, a whole... Uh, there's a large group of people who who are adamantly and staunchly against uh, the idea of paying college athletes. They think it kind of ruins the amateurism of the sport. Um, I personally wasn't uh, someone who thought these guys necessarily needed to be paid um, initially, and but I, I think that what's happening now, when you when you put it in the perspective of the fact that there are so many millions of dollars being made, and Billions. there's so and there's so much money to go around. There's enough for everybody. All you're asking for is that these guys get the opportunity to earn a little slice of the pie that they're already earning for everybody else. And uh, they, the fact that they're, they're, it's them, the athletes on the field, that are generating the revenue for everybody else, and they don't see any of it, um, to me, isn't right. And I think the fact that they're going to start to have the opportunity um, to make some money for their achievements on the field is ultimately a good thing. And I think there are a lot of people that are worried about how it's going to go. But for, for me, the thing has always been this. I don't see how it would, how it's going to change the, the product on the field for college football. That's number one. I don't think it's any threat to the game as we know it. Um, I think we may see a couple guys who get fat and happy and turn into cautionary tales because they get cut or they lose their scholarship because they got their money and they stopped caring. That that happens in pro sports too, and we've we've seen that everywhere. But that sorts itself out. And on top of that, they're just—it's not like we're talking about suddenly 
now everybody who goes and plays a college sport makes $50,000 a year doing it. It's going to be the fact that it's endorsement related. It's going to be the players who are in the highest demand. It's going to be the quarterbacks of your teams. It's going to be the Heisman candidates. It's going to be uh, it's going to be basically the the noticeable figurehead type people, the kinds of pe- players that that sell jerseys. And so it's not going to affect everybody. It's not going to be something um, where I think that every all the players get complacent, fat, and happy because they're getting their paycheck. I think some guys are going to earn a lot more money because they generate a lot more money, and I think that's ultimately a good thing. So that my good of the week is is that I think we're moving in a direction that's positive uh, for these young men who, frankly, have a right to some of this money that they're earning for everybody else. Yeah, well said. Um, you know... <laughs> The law that is being proposed in both California and New York, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's really a law that would allow the athletes to profit off of their own likeness. So basically... Correct. Yeah. So, so basically, we are talking about the, the top, top one or two athletes in football and basketball, mainly. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, really what we're talking about is uh, if the USC quarterback is a big-time stud and is a Heisman Trophy candidate... It would there the law if passed would sort of allow him to profit off of Nike's sales of his jerseys in some way, mm-hmm. or would allow mm-hmm. him to go out and get uh, do a commercial with a local car dealership or a local yep. restaurant and, and slap get, his and face on a money. billboard and have him get paid right. for it. Which is really the NCAA has outlawed it. It's not really outlawed yes. uh, legally speaking in any of the states. I don't think. So it's going to be really interesting uh, legally if these states pass it, how it's going to sort of be enforced with the NCAA, because the NCAA, I don't think, would really necessarily be in any sort of, uh, they wouldn't have to necessarily change their laws. I'm not really sure how it's going to work. I think it's a long way down the road, even if these laws do get passed. I also think it's kind of interesting, the two states that are considering it are probably, of all the major states in the country, are the two that have really the least amount of fan interest in college athletics. I mean, New York mm-hmm. in particular doesn't really have any great college athletic programs. I mean, Syracuse, I guess, is the best. Uh, and then California, uh, you know, certainly has some, but they've been struggling both in football and basketball almost across the board now for the past five or so years. But that's almost beside the point. I just think it's sort of an, an interesting side note. Um, you know, I don't... For me, I don't have a problem if it's passed. I'm interested to see how, how it's enforced. For the more interesting thing to me, though, is how, you know, I think all of these guys need or, or at least deserve to get paid a little bit. And a lot of people think that they get a lot. I mean, we've discussed this, and I agree, you know, they now get the price of tuition plus all the other benefits, free room and board, and, and every, all the other perks that come with it. You know, I would kind of like to see the entire you know, what is it, 12, 14-man roster in college basketball, and then college football is the real problem because you've got like 70 guys that travel. You've got mm-hmm. 100-something, 100-some-odd guys there who are actually on the team. So I don't know how you pay all of them, and then I don't know where the line is drawn. And then it becomes an issue of how do some of these smaller schools foot the bill. You know, how does a school like Fresno State foot the bill for 100 football players and continue to have all these other sports and also satisfy Title IX? Uh, Title IX's a big, 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 big roadblock in all of this that people want to seem to ignore. 
And then, you know, can Fresno State still compete to where they can give USC a game, as we saw them do two weeks ago? So, you know, I, I worry for the little man more than anything because in, in all facets That's of That's fair, our, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in all facets of our life now, in all facets of our society, we see consolidation of wealth. And you see the big boys sort of uh, choke out the little boy, so to speak, or the little man. And I think that that's where we're heading here, to where a lot of these smaller programs simply are not going to be able to compete. And if they can't compete, why even have a program? And that's where, uh, you know, there, there is something to be said for the Citadel going into Atlanta last weekend and beating Georgia Tech, you know. And, it, and if, if we go in this direction, I don't see how the Citadel – is going to be able to pay their players and, and not, you know. So I don't know. I, it, I think it's a slippery slope. I think, generally speaking, I'm in favor of it. Um, it but I, I, I agree with you it's a step in the right direction, but I think that there's so many hurdles to be overcome before mm-hmm. anything actually happens. I still think we're a long way off. I think we are too, but I'm, I am glad that we're starting to lay the groundwork for it to be possible because I think there is going to be a lot of red tape to cut through and there's going to be a lot of bureaucratic crap for them to figure out as far as how you administer this the right way um, without uh, creating a situation like the one you're talking about. Yeah, and then the, the, the other part that concerns me is just sort of the team dynamic. You know, if one guy is making all this cash and, and pretty much literally no one else on the team is, which would be the case, you know, if these laws pass and are, in enact- and are enacted in New York and California, I think that creates an awfully weird dynamic. You know, you see that in the NBA. I mean, obviously, Steph Curry makes a lot more money than the ninth guy on the bench, but it's pro sports, and the ninth guy on the bench is still getting a million dollars a year. Uh, and so there's a big difference between a million dollars a year and no dollars a year. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know. I, I just, these are still team sports, and, and, and the, di- the team dynamic does concern me on some level. So, I, again, I just think there's a lot of things to be figured out, and, and I look forward to seeing where it goes, but it's definitely interesting, very interesting, because this has been uh, a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Uh, my good of the week, I'm going to move over to college football. And okay. you know, like I, normally we do the show on Tuesday and, and we just sort of recap what happened. Well, last week's well behind us. I think we've got a great slate of games coming up this Saturday. I'm really mm-hmm. excited for it. Full disclosure, I'm on a 10 a.m. flight to Las Vegas tomorrow morning. Whoop, whoop. Uh, I'm going to be in the sports book, literally in the book, all weekend long. I'm also going to be yes. going to the Life is Beautiful Music Festival uh, really f- looking forward to that. Just a few friends. It's going to be great. Um, so I'm looking forward to the slate, but we'll get to that in our In the Book segment. But when I look around the college landscape, Ryan, you know, and, and watch all these games as I do, I feel like we've got a really strong crop of quarterbacks right now leading the top eight or nine teams in the country. I mean, if you just look at the polls and you go down the list, you've got Trevor Lawrence at Clemson, you got Tua at Alabama, Jake Fromm at Georgia, Joe Burrow at LSU, Jalen Hurts at, at uh, Oklahoma, um, Josh Fields at Ohio State, and Ian Book leading the Fighting Irish. And that's your top eight right there. There's, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a drop-off after that with Michigan and Florida. Then you get down to Oregon. You know, Obviously, your guy, Justin Herbert, is a big-time prospect. And I think all of those guys, Ryan, are really good players. I think they're all, on, on some to some degree, uh, 
big-time pro prospects. I'm not sure about all of them, but certainly most of them. I mean, a lot of these guys are going to be top 10, top 5 type picks. And I'm not sure if I've seen... I'm not sure the last time I've seen a crop like this in college football that are really legitimate NFL prospects uh, at the top of the college football rankings. You know, a lot of times, you know, Alabama, for example, hasn't really put any of their quarterbacks in the pros, uh, at least not as starting quarterbacks in the NFL over this run that we've had. I just feel like a lot of the the better quarterbacks, save Deshaun Watson and Cam Newton, and, and now Kyler Murray, you know, and Baker Mayfield too. But I feel like now we're starting to sort of buck the trim where you had a lot of quarterbacks from lesser schools, lesser programs. They weren't on great teams. And now it just feels like all the best teams also have really good quarterbacks. And I, I just think that that's great for the sport because the general fan is drawn to a quarterback above all else in college football. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm excited to see um, some of these quarterback battles, like specifically Book and Fromm uh, this weekend. I think that uh, – I, I don't know if, if a guy like Herbert is going to get tested down on the farm, but I, I'm excited. Um, I think it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a weird slate. There aren't too many marquee matchups this week, but I think there are going to be some good ones, and I, I think one of those marquee ones is obviously Notre Dame-Georgia. And if I'm looking at that game, it's a huge proving point for Notre Dame. I think they have more to gain maybe than Georgia does. And, uh, but Georgia, I think probably has more to lose. So, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically excited for that game and to see those quarterbacks do battle. Yeah. And, you know, looking down the line, you're going to see Burrow battle from, uh, maybe they don't play in the regular season. That would be in the SEC championship. You're going to see uh, Burrow battle Tua. you're going to see, you know, Hertz take on Ellinger, who I didn't mention at, at, at some point. You know, you're just going to have a lot of great matchups. And, and again, I just think it's great for the sport to have these marquee quarterbacks that you can sort of market and advertise and draw so many more fans in just because, you know, they Justin get the headlines. Fields. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're recognizable. And they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're young, good-looking guys. And, and, they're, and they're great yep. football players. So I just think it's great for college football as we head into what I think is the best Saturday of the four that we've had so far. Uh, so that's Ooh. my good of the week. What's your bad? Uh, my bad, I'm going to stay. Well, I guess it's partially in the world of college football. It's also in the world of pro football. But there is a trend that is becoming maddening uh, for, and I'm not, that's not John maddening. It's, it's driving me mad. Coaches and game management late, or just game management in general, and not understanding score deficits, margins, and what you need in certain situations. And, and to backtrack a little bit, I first saw it, I mean, this has been something that's kind of go, been going on for a while, but now in the age where everybody is so able to um, analyze and, and know all the, 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 essentially the most proficient and efficient ways in which to manage a game, it's inexcusable to not manage your team and your possessions the right way. And it started with, at least for me, noticing it this year in the NFL with the Raiders and the Broncos on Sunday night, or excuse me, on Monday night. Yeah, uh, the week first one. And Vic, and Vic Fangio was down 16 points with seven and a half minutes left, and he kicked a field goal. You need 16 points. You need two touchdowns and two two-point conversions 
to be able to tie the game. A That's field the goal, quickest way to 16. It, it's pretty easy it, math, you, you, it, you are going If you kick a field goal, you are still going to be down 13 points, and you're still going to need two touchdowns. So go start going for the touchdowns right now. That was egregious you know, violation number one. The next one is, by the, in chronological order, by far the least defensible. And that was with Pat Narduzzi last weekend. And I, I, I don't know if you saw this, but... I saw it. Penn yeah. State, Pitt. It's a 17-10 game, five and a half minutes left. Pitt has the ball on the Penn State one, and they have one timeout down seven. What do they do? They kick the field goal. They missed the field goal, but they opted to kick the field goal, which would have only made it a... Th- 17-13 game, and they still would have needed a touchdown. Mind you, they can only stop the clock once, and this it doesn't. The field goal effectively does nothing for you in that situation. Narduzzi, after the game, doubled down and said, "Well, you need two scores to win the game." Well, for one, that's not true. If you score a touchdown, and get a two-point conversion, you can win with one score. But also, if you kick the field goal, you're still going to need a, a touchdown to win. You you, you can't overcome it without a touchdown you're knocking on the door and he also said he trusted his defense well then if you don't get it you're putting Penn State on their own one yard line with a 99 yard field as Chris Felica said on the Stanford Stephen the Bear podcast they they honestly would have been better off taking a knee than they would have been kicking the field goal in that point because they they need a touchdown anyways and they would have at least, they would have been giving them the ball closer up the field. So you are better Much off. Much better field position. Yeah. I mean, it's not even close. And for Narduzzi, multiple days in a row to defend his tactics, it's insane. I don't it's understand how they. It's almost a fireable offense. In it, my opinion. it is. It's if it, it's hard to fathom for him not how to you walk can it not back. See it. Yeah. For the fact that he didn't walk it back at all on the Monday presser is 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 just. And then again on Tuesday, it really is. And so then, so then on top of that, it's you go to the NFL and Cardinals Ravens and Cliff Kingsbury and the Cardinals were inside the Ravens five yard line three times. They kicked the field goal all three times and lost by six. You're on the road against a team with a good defense. When you are in there, you have to take your shots, and if you convert. Just two of the three. You don't even you don't even need all of them. You're winning that game. If you convert one of them, you might be winning that game because a field goal and a touchdown would have been enough to get you over the hump. And but instead, playing conservative, once you've taken all that real estate getting all the way down the field and gotten yourself in position to capitalize on all the work you've done, you essentially give up and take the field goal when the best opportunity for you to win the game is to go for the end zone. And it seems like these coaches, I don't know that they if they don't understand it. Or if they do understand it, and in the moment they get they get paralyzed by the idea of not getting points. Um, I've heard ESPN writer Kate Fagan has a great analogy about this. She calls it the hostage situation, <laughs> and that basically it is the equivalent of you, a kidnapper, coming and taking you hostage and saying, "Get in the van." And you get in the van because you think it's prolonging your life, but you are making your situation ultimately way worse for yourself. You're better off trying to avoid the van at the outset and take a more extreme course of action to not take the, the life extender that's ultimately going to get you killed, which, which is what's happening Good here. analogy. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the Narduzzi one is the one. That really that's sucks. by far the worst. But, but coaches at all levels and of all – I mean, people – I think Cliff Kingsbury is a pretty sharp guy, and I thought Vic Fangio is a pretty sharp guy. And I don't know what these guys are doing. 
I don't either. Um, and, you know, I feel like we actually see less of this than we used to, although mm-hmm. that, that could be not true. Um, but and I think the reason for that, and this is actually kind of falls under a topic that I've actually been thinking quite a bit about. I'm going to hit on it a little bit in my interesting of the week, and that is just sort of the a- adaptation, the slow adaptation of analytics in the NFL. I think mm-hmm. we've seen MLB and NBA adapt the whole thing a lot quicker. Um, I do think that you're seeing it seep into the NFL more and more now. I think that there's way more passing on first and second downs than there has ever been before, and I think that's totally analytic-driven. I think you're seeing coaches go for it on fourth fourth and short way more than ever before, and I think that's analytics-driven. I don't think that these decisions are analytic-driven, but I do think coaches are making better decisions in these situations because of you know their, their GM and their front office is just hammering them on, you know, just sort of making it simple on here's the percentages, you know, fourth and mm-hmm. one, you know, on your own 40 or better, you know, here's what the odds are. So just do it, you know, and it almost takes the, the guessing out of it for them. Yeah. But it seems like some of these coaches just lose their freaking minds out there. And I understand that, you know, I've never coached, I've never coached any football at any level. Um, and I certainly haven't coached an NFL or a big time college program in front of 80,000 people. So I really can't relate to what it's like down there on the sideline, but I can, you know, I've been to a lot of games and I can imagine it's pretty stressful down there, but it definitely is. The other thing though, Michael, is I, I don't understand and maybe they do. And I, I heard um, a, a, a Las Vegas uh, sports book director. He believes that these people are in place and the coaches just are ignoring them, but it feels like there should just, these organizations have enough money, whether it's at the college level or the pro level to just pay someone to be in the coach's ear and say, punt, go, kneel, spike. I mean, whatever the situation is just an automatic. It's like when you go to Vegas where you're going and there's that little blackjack card that says every hand, here's what you do. And you memorize it. It's it's honestly not that hard to memorize. And if you can't memorize it, then you just have that guy in your ear on the headset saying, this is what you do here, and then you have a list of things that you can do in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I remember the blackjack card when I've had 15 Miller Lights at 3 in the morning. So (laughs) I would think that Mr. Narduzzi could do the math on 7 at at the one-yard line in Happy Valley. I would think. You would think. But maybe I'm wrong. But again... The part that's bad about it is not so much that decision, but it's the doubling and tripling down on that decision that really has me concerned for Mr. Narduzzi and his yeah. mental health and for the entire Pitt program, who welcomes <laughs> the Central Florida Knights into town this Saturday, who oh, seem to be firing on all cylinders. So, uh, all right, that's a good bad of the week. Uh, I'm going to actually call an audible at the line of scrimmage here. I'm, I'm using nice. I analytics like to make Omaha. that decision. If that's okay with you, um, I was going to talk yeah. about our boy Antonio Brown and just the weird yeah. situation that we have with him, you know, accused of these heinous acts. And apparently the NFL talked to the accuser for 10 hours, which seems honestly like a made up number to me. I mean, it I don't also know seems what... like a lot. At what point is she exhausted from this whole thing? Probably about five I mean, how much do you really in. have to tell? Yeah. Um, but I'm, I don't want to really talk about that because I don't know really what to say. I don't know really what the Patriots should do or what the NFL should do. Clearly, I don't have all the facts. So I'm going to call an audible, and I'm going to talk about quarterbacks some more. I think I'm going to end up talking about quarterbacks in both my good, bad, and interesting, but that's okay. Um, so my bad of the week is just these, these great quarterbacks um, either 
getting benched or injuries seemingly maybe ending their careers. And I'm talking about Drew Brees, Big Ben, and Eli Manning. And I just, you know, I don't know. It makes me a little sad to see these old, great quarterbacks uh, just sort of their career end before our eyes, you know. And Brees obviously is going to have a chance to come back. Uh, Big Ben and Eli, we don't know. Um, but it's just, you know, they, they've been around for so long. It's, it's so rare, you know, this whole era with those three. Obviously, of course, Tom Brady, um, Aaron Rodgers is certainly a part of that. They've just dominated the NFL for so long. Now, Peyton Manning obviously retired a couple of years ago. He certainly was a part of this, too. And, you know, we're seeing new guys arise, but I think that there's going to be a hole in the NFL. I mean, you, you already feel it, this this. Uh, Steeler game in San Francisco this weekend is much less attractive now that Big Ben is out. And sure, it's going to be fun to see how Mason Rudolph, the young gunslinger out of Oklahoma State, handles it. It's going to be fun to see, you know, may, I guess on some level, Teddy Bridgewater uh, get another no. opportunity. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I'd rather see Breeze, right? I'd ra- yeah, obviously, yeah. I'd rather see Breeze. I'd rather see Big Ben. And I just think it sucks, and injuries sucking. You know, not just the quarterbacks, but you're, I'm watching that Falcons-Eagles game on Sunday night, and those Eagles players were just dropping like flies, man. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to watch. It really is. I've gotten to the point, it doesn't even have to be a head injury, but I just feel like we know so much more now. You know, where, where you see Andrew Luck retire early, you see Cam Newton now. Uh, he's another quarterback that may not be able to go this week. I've got no love for Cam Newton, but he's a great player, and I don't want to see him out there just a shell of his old self. And you just really, your head starts to go places that you really don't want it to go, and you're sitting on the couch trying to enjoy the game, and on some level, I can't because it's just so brutal, and and the brutality of the sport just sort of hits you square in the face, and you think about, uh, I keep saying you, I I should be saying I. I think about... um, you know, just the these decades, these generations of players where who just went out there and played hurt and played concussed and, and you know, they didn't have medicine, they didn't have training the way we do now. Nobody knew it. And, you know, these guys must have been going through hell for decades upon decades just playing football while people sit at home and throw back cold ones and watch it on TV. It, it just, sometimes it just, it just doesn't taste right, if you know what I mean. And, and it, yeah. it, it hit me hard on Sunday night, you know, thinking about all these quarterbacks going down and, and seeing these Eagle players just get decimated. You know, you have your quarterback go down in week two, Ryan. Your season's basically over. I mean, you know, football, we, we look forward to football all year. You know, it's the shortest season. It's the longest all season. And to have your season, for all intents and purposes, be over in week two as a fan or as a teammate, uh, it really sucks. It just does. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say other than that. So that's my bad yeah, of the week, is injuries yeah. and the brutality of football. It does suck. And um, specifically, I think it's really tough on the game when uh, the quarterbacks are dropping like flies. And it's not just some of the older guys like Breeze and uh, Roethlisberger, but you got Nick Foles, who was, I think, excited to be in Jacksonville in For a position sure. maybe to win a division where uh, that, that's a little bit soft this year. You, you mentioned Cam Newton. Um, Sam Darnold is a guy that I was hoping maybe w- we would see 
make a second-year step. I think that Adam Gase being an offensive guy, maybe there was some substance there. And obviously, he's going to be back in just a couple weeks as he's dealing with mono. But you look at all the guys who have already gone down in the season or weren't there to start the season. I mean, you look at you look at Luck, now Breeze, Roethlisberger, Foles, and, and Darnold, and Newton, and you've got like six or seven of the, the faces of the game at quarterback who aren't in there. Now Eli Manning's benched, and that's not related to injury, but just the fact that time has passed him by. And it, it, there is, it feels like a changing of the guard. The one part that, I know you say it sucks, and I, I agree the brutality of it forcing guys out of the game. Some, in some ways, though, I feel like for each guy um, that we're seeing start to hit the downside of his career, we're also seeing new guys emerge, the guys the Patrick Mahomes, the Kyler Murrays, the Lamar Jacksons. And, you know, I don't know if guys like Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray are going to stick. I think that, you know, we'll obviously find out. But Car- Carson Wentz is another guy that comes mm-hmm. to, mind. Desha- De- to mind. Deshaun Watson, if they can actually keep him upright and healthy. Um, but there, there are so many emerging stars now that I feel like the league has always kind of been in a place where there's maybe eight or ten really good quarterbacks and then, some, uh, you know, the middle 10 are maybe some retread kind of guys that have bounced around like uh, the, the Fitzpatrick's and the and the Case Keenum's. And they're not great, but, you know, they're going to be starting somewhere. And then the others are just guys who are getting beat to shit that probably shouldn't be playing the position and they're waiting for somebody to take their job. So uh, I feel like that's that's almost always what the landscape looks like. And it's it's weird when that landscape's changing because we're used to be we're used to having those some of those guys that I just mentioned who are out now being at the top of that mantle. Yeah, and it's like, you know, really when it comes down to it, I started talking, lamenting the loss of these great quarterbacks uh, that we've seen for so long. That's honestly almost not it for me. It's more about just the stark reality of these guys just getting their freaking brains beat in, number one. And Mm -hmm. number two, uh, it's just a worse product when the best guys aren't in there, whether it's a quarterback or any other position. I want to see the best guys. You know, that's as a fan, that's mm-hmm. what I want to see. I don't even care about it, even from a betting perspective, or certainly not from a fantasy perspective. I don't care about that as much. I just want to sit down and watch great players and great games. And and when the, the best players are hurt, that's taken away from you, and it sucks. So uh, that's really my bad of the week. What's your interesting? My interesting of the week, and I feel like it's, I don't want to say it's, I don't think that this particular case is that interesting, but my, my interesting of the week is Hall of Fame candidacy and what makes a good Hall of Fame member, and not necessarily for each sport, but really how that's judged. It's a little bit nebulous, much like the Heisman is, where it's it's not necessarily a most valuable, it's not necessarily a most outstanding, um, it's, it's kind of nebulous as to what matters more, your postseason achievements, individual moments, or overall body of work. And this all comes up for me because of the now raging Eli Manning debate of whether he is or is not a Hall of Famer. Uh, For me, having watched Eli Manning his entire 15-year NFL career, most of the time I would argue he was not a very good quarterback. I, I mean, I think on most Sundays, he didn't look great. He, he, he was okay. He was one of those guys who was serviceable, middle 10 in the league for me, but he kept the Patriots from finishing their perfect undefeated season, and he beat him twice in the Super Bowl. He won two Super Bowls, and anybody who wins two Super Bowls is kind of in some legendary status, but passing numbers aren't great, and his 
record as a starter as he gets benched this week is 116 and 116. He is perfectly average. And I'm not sure if that belongs in the Hall of Fame. And I'm not saying it should or it shouldn't, but I think the way that people come to these decisions is so interesting because I think everybody has a different barometer and a different set of rules. And I'm not really even sure what it should be, but I, when I see a guy like Eli Manning, I don't necessarily think Hall of Famer. I've seen other people say if his last name wasn't Manning or if he didn't play in New York, if his name was Smith and he played in Cleveland, would he be a Hall of Famer? Um, I don't know the answer to those questions, but I, I see Eli Manning and I think, eh, pretty average quarterback. But there are other people who say, oh, yeah, automatic Hall of Famer. And I, I think it's interesting that we could, people could be so far apart on this argument. But the reason for that is that no one really knows what the right qualifier for a Hall of Fame is. Yeah, this is a super interesting conversation. It can go in so as deep as you want it to, particularly when you bring in all the sports, because the Football Hall of Fame is the toughest of the three major sports to get in by mm-hmm. far. Uh, baseball is second, but we've talked a lot about the Baseball Hall of Fame. I'm really upset with the Baseball Hall of Fame right now and the way they're treating this whole steroid thing. I think yeah. it totally sucks. I think they've let a lot of guys in, not a lot, but a few guys in that absolutely don't deserve to be there, and they've, and they've gotten in at the expense of these guys that are suspected steroid users that absolutely should be in, so I'm pissed off at them. Uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame is kind of a sham, honestly. They, they, they it is. Let it's in, easy. Too many guys, Ryan. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I almost every fan agrees with that. So, uh, but specific to Eli and specific to the the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I almost feel like it's a little bit too tough to get in. I think there's a lot of guys that should be in uh, that aren't in, and I think that there's a lot of guys like Ken Stabler's a really good example where it's just a damn shame that he died before he got in, and he probably should have gotten in a lot earlier. Um, Specific to Eli, I disagree with you. Uh, We usually agree. I think Eli is a surefire Hall of Famer, and I don't think that just because of the two Super Bowls. I think he's been unfairly criticized. I'd have to take a deep dive on the numbers. For me, numbers, you know, when you're having these Hall of Fame debates, I think numbers really are quite But for me, Michael, it's not the numbers. It's the eye test. Most Sundays, I thought he was not the better quarterback in the game that he was playing. He hasn't been recently, but he... For the and maybe first, it's the recency bias that's for showing, the first but I eight just... or nine years, yeah. man, he was pretty good, and he had, they were a really good team. And, you know, you think back to the Tom He was Coughlin fine, days. but was he ever top five in the league? I think he like, was. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he was. Okay. How many... Who's thrown for more yards, Eli or Aaron Rodgers? Let's find out. I'm looking um, at it. Okay. Don't look it up. So what, what do you guess? <laughs> oh, I'm just guessing? Yeah, what do you guess? Uh, I would bet Eli has, but he's played 15 years. Yeah, he's got 13,000 more yards than Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Eli is the seventh all-time. But, it, so, but, but Rodgers, if he plays three more healthy seasons, gets there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to compare eras in football because obviously they pass it so much more now. Uh, Eli's thrown it for 5,000 more yards than John Elway. He's thrown it for... 6,000 more yards than Warren Moon. Uh, So, I don't know. He's the seventh all-time leading passer by yards. And he's won the two Super Bowls, both in epic fashion. uh, Played in in arguably the toughest market to play in. Pressure everywhere you looked. I don't know. I think he's a Hall of Famer. But 
The more interesting discussion to me, Ryan, is just sort of how we vote on the Hall of Fame. I think that uh, each league does it differently, and I don't think any of them really do it all that great. I don't think that the writers alone should have all the power. In, in baseball in particular, there's too many writers that have a vote, and many of them don't really cover or even write about baseball. You know, they get in and they have it for a really long time. Pro football, they have like, what, fifteen a 15-person 15 committee or something like that, sit in a room. Something like that. I would like to see in this day and age of the internet um, and, you know, just sort of the sports scene having exploded the way it has, I would like to have see the fans have some sort of say some sort of input, because honestly, I feel like if you just put up a simple Twitter poll, you know, is this guy a Hall of Famer, yes or no, I think that that would be just as reliable as the way we're currently doing it, to, to be totally honest. Yeah. I, I do, and, and you know, I don't know, you'd have to limit it somehow, everybody only gets one vote or something like that, obviously they're not going to do this, but I would be interested to see how it went, maybe we could even... Not we, but maybe we could even have like a fan hall of fame, you know, where we actually do that and that could have some level of meaning. I don't know. I'm just kind of down on the whole hall of fame process. I've always, I am too. You know, ever since I became a sports fan, a real little kid, to me, you know, being a hall of famer was just like, it's the absolute holy grail in, in your sport. And to be a hall of famer is such an honor. And I just, I don't know. I take it really seriously. And I feel like, I feel like the whole process in kind of all three sports has been cheapened to some degree. And, you know, I also wonder if we do it the best way in terms of, you know, this sort of four or five year grace period we have between them retiring and the vote. I almost feel like it would be better just to vote, you know, the day they retire, you know, almost. You just have uh, the committee gets together. I mean, you could do this. You can do this on the internet now, right? You can just yeah. vote, vote. No Whoever's question. chosen to vote, vote. Is this guy a Hall of Famer? Yes or no? You know, I feel like the way the Pro Football Hall of Fame does it, where you have a guy speak on your behalf and they lobby the other voters, <clears throat> to me that's weird. And it just brings in like weird interpersonal relationships you have with the other writers or the athletes or whatever And you've it just is. given me an idea, Michael. You ready for this? Hit me. We make it. We make an event out of this, and we replace the we replace the Pro Bowl. So basically, the week before the Super Bowl, everybody who's deciding to call it a career, we can have our vote at the end of the at the end of uh, basically use that weekend as like a as a the vote the voting is open here. It's a twenty four hour period for the nation to decide, and then we all and then it's announced in this big thing. And then the players who do play in Super Bowl, they can still get a free trip to Hawaii and go do some skills competition if they want. But we just do away with the Pro Bowl completely because it's stupid. Yeah, and you know, honestly, when you talk about we, we're in this content age now, and and everything comes back to online and the internet. This is ripe for content, honestly, and and just online voting and. And all in real time and social media. I mean, think about what you could do with this whole Hall of Fame thing, just sort of with the fans in the moment. The the possibilities really are endless. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but I really do think that the potential is there to make it better and to make it more entertaining. So I don't know. Just spitballing here on the Buck and Sack show. But that's your good. Interesting of the week. I really enjoyed that. Uh, my interesting of the week, I'm going to go back to quarterbacks, as I promised you that I would. I'm really playing to the masses here tonight. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we talk about these quarterbacks going down, 
And I saw somebody tweet out this list earlier in the week on Monday or Tuesday. The list of quarterbacks that come from either a college air raid or spread offense. You know, spread offense really is sort of a hybrid of what started with the run and shoot. I went back and did a little history research today, Ryan. Uh, are you familiar with the name Mouse Davis? I am not. Okay, Mouse Davis is the man who, who originally popularized the original run-and-shoot offense in the 1960s. Um, he took it from, there was a book written by, now I had heard of Mouse Davis. I had never heard of this man, Glenn Tiger Ellison. He was a football never heard coach of him either. These at are a high school though. in Ohio. He wrote this book called Run-and-Shoot Football, Offense of the Future, back in the early 60s. And I guess Mouse... Uh, read it, and then studied under this high school coach and took it to Portland State. And then he was later hired in the NFL. He was an offensive coordinator. Uh, Wait, is it Portland State? Is that where June Jones adopted it? Exactly, yes. So June Jones learned from Mouse, and Mouse also taught it to the Jerry Glanville era Houston Oilers and then later to the Detroit Lions when they were really good with Barry Sanders. And so the run-and-shoot sort of became the spread. The spread has now become what's known as the Air Raid, which, you know, Texas Tech and, and Hawaii sort of famously ran. Mike and Lee. do you know the story behind the name of the Air Raid? No, uh, no. Is that Mike Leach, I believe he was coaching at Wesleyan, and he was, in addition to being the head coach, acting as his own sports information director – and the only way that he could that he could get anyone to print anything about him is if he essentially called all the major news outlets himself and reported what happened in all of his games. And huh. so he coined the term air raid because he thought it would it would be somewhat catchy and make people pay more attention. At one point, it got written up and it stuck. Interesting. So that's a little history lesson of what started with the run and shoot again became spread now air raid. But my point is this. Uh, we're gonna. These are the following quarterbacks who are going to start this Sunday or have already started tonight in that thrilling Thursday night showdown. <laughs> um, this weekend, under center in the NFL, these are all disciples of spread or air raid offenses in college. you got Kyler Murray out of Oklahoma, Gardner Minshew, who looked great tonight for Jacksonville. He's out of Mike Leach's system, obviously, in Washington State. The same can be said of your boy, Luke Falk, who's going to be back under center for the Jets. Baker Mayfield, Sooners, Patrick Mahomes, Texas Tech, Jared Goff out of Cal. Now, Cal's not really running anymore, but they were with Sonny Dykes when Goff was there. Yes. Uh, Mason Rudolph out of Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy. Mm -hmm. Case Keenum out of Houston. And Kyle Allen, I guess, is going to go uh, if Cam mm -hmm. Newton can't the Panthers. Where, refresh my memory. Where did he play? A&M? Uh, he, he also played at Houston, I believe. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. He was at Texas A&M with Kevin Sumlin, Mike Murray. You still there? You still there? Okay, I can't hear you. It sounded like you were twisting your microphone, maybe, and then I lost you. I got you. Do you hear me? Oh, now I hear you. Yeah, okay. you, yeah. I think I think when you twisted your jacket. Uh, Cut out. Okay, sorry about that. I actually didn't. All good. Yeah. I, I was something. I was just here popping. Didn't over. twist the jack. Didn't. Hmm. Didn't. Didn't twist the jack. <laughs> <laughs> no, I trust you. I trust you. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I just think it's interesting. Above all else, 
how long it's taken the NFL to adapt this system that's sort of been popular in college for a while. Again, we saw it popular with the Oilers, and, and a few other teams have dabbled with it throughout the years in the NFL, but it, now it seems like uh, the NFL game is full-on embracing it, and I just think it's mm -hmm. interesting. You know, it's almost like everything in the NFL that, that's really important now has taken so long to sort of come to fruition, whether it's this, the spread offense or whether it's having finally not having tolerance for players beating women or finally kind of understanding what the concussion thing and the CTE and how damaging that whole thing is. And I feel like the NFL powers that be have known about all of these things for decades, and it's taken all of this time to sort of embrace it and understand it and finally actually do something about it. And I just think that it's interesting how it all just sort of comes together. But as far as the on-the-field goes, I think it's just kind of fun now how these NFL teams are, are finally giving these quarterbacks who really you know, aren't the prototypical NFL quarterback who just sort of sling it all over the field from the shotgun in four in a four-receiver formation, finally giving them the time of day. So that's my interesting of the week. I think that's a super interesting, interesting of the week. I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And um, for one, uh, one of the things that really stands out to me about this system is I think it diminishes the need for really top-end um, playmakers at the wide receiver and quarterback position. I think when you spread the defense out uh, and you face a little bit thinner fronts and you can hit some of these quick hitch passes, one, they're easier passes for the quarterbacks to make. Some of them, I mean, it's not like this is suddenly easy. There's a lot for them to read, but it's not the same as having to hit a 25-yard out, uh, you know, just over the corner and inside the safety on the cover, too. Um, and, I, and I also think as a receiver, you don't need to be the big guy that can outrun somebody in the one-on-one -on -one battle on the edge or go get a jump ball necessarily. So much more of it. There's, there's so much raw speed out there in football today, um, more than we've ever had before. And you can just get a guy in open space. It is tough to bring down a man who's, who's running 15 miles an hour right after he catches a football. And yeah. uh, I, I think it, it kind of makes the point of entry for being competitive for some of these teams who maybe – don't have the top end personnel. Like you don't need Julio Jones to be able to run an offense like this. You don't need uh, a precision passer uh, like the likes of Drew Brees to be able to run this sort of offense. Some of the guys who are running it and having success with it, I'm not sure are great quarterbacks as far as being precision throwers. Jared Goss, one of those guys, he's going to get 130 million bucks because he can do what J Sean McVay wants to do, spreading guys out, finding mismatches, putting players in the right spots. And then, you know, it, it is interesting to see how how slow the league was to kind of get to this point where we had seen it working so well um, in college for maybe the last 10 years or so. I mean, I know it goes back further than that, but it's, it's really been so overly prevalent in the last, uh, in the last, I would say, decade or 15 years. Yeah. Um, but it, it's... To me, it's it's almost like a, the next evolution of the West Coast offense because I think a lot of times you don't necessarily need uh, the long plays or the big hitters, but with some of these five, six, seven-yard plays, you're just using a first down pass to set up the run, which is what the West Coast offense was all about anyways. But you did it in a pro formation. You did it in the, didn't do it in the shotgun. You didn't do it with four receivers spread out and your tight end not with a hand in the ground. It just looked a little bit different. And so I think there's a lot of principles that are similar to what Bill Walsh even wanted to bring to the game, but sure. um, but it's it's uh, it is interesting to see kind of what the style du jour of that principle is, and and how it's you know how the the positions are evolving around it. Yeah, two two things to add here. When I was doing 
a little of the research on the, the origins of the run and shoot in Mouse Davis. His original sort of basic what was your other con- guy, Tiger, what was his name? Oh, hold on. Uh, Glenn Nelson Tiger Ellison. He coached at Middletown High in Ohio. He wrote the book Run and Shoot Football Offense of the Future. Probably be a hell of a read, honestly, to go back and read that. But oh, I'm then sure he, it would. Yeah, Mouse Davis in Portland State, and he taught it to June Jones, and it kind of spread from there. Um, but the, the real interesting concept that was sort of the base of that offense and the, this idea behind it was to have four wide receivers and to have, on every play, have a man in motion. And with the idea being, if a defender w- went with the man in motion, then the quarterback basically knew that they were in man defense. Right. And if he didn't go with the man in motion, they were in zone. So it was really mm-hmm. sort of a design to take the, the read out of the quarterback's hands and to sure. simplify that. And then, you know, everything kind of went off of that. And I think we're still seeing that today. And just yeah. something to watch this weekend when we're watching games. You know, I think that that's just an interesting thing. You know... I didn't play football. You didn't either. Uh, really, no. I don't think either of us really know football, even though we've watched a ton of it and we understand it. But we can't diagram plays on a whiteboard. We don't understand coverages, really. We don't understand formations the way real football players do. But I just enjoy the, the more I can learn, the more I enjoy it. And that's really how I like to watch games. And I, I've for all these years, I've just been wanting to, like, become friends with an ex-player or an ex-coach where I could sit on a couch and watch games all day and have them really teach me football. Because honestly, I don't think it's that complex. I think I could pick it up pretty easily. And I really want to do that here before before it's all said and done for me. So, Yeah, I would too. I mean, I've thought about this a long time. Because I never played, I really don't know the... I mean, I feel like you and I know football very well as yeah. from a fan's perspective, but I would love to know more about gaps, zones, coverages, play calls, uh, motions, all, all, all the X's it. and O's stuff, the nitty, yeah. the nitty gritty that like what players are being taught. Um, that, that would be fascinating to me. And just how complex it really is, because it seems like the verbiage, you know, when you hear, uh, you know, like John Gruden's old quarterback camp or whatever it was called, he'd have them, you know call draw up this that xyz banana or whatever it is and it sounds super complex yes yeah, yeah i bet it's not that complex honestly but uh i digress the other interesting part of it is is i'm not sure if running these wide open run and shoot offenses in the nfl or even at the high levels of college football i don't know if that's the best way to win because i mean we're seeing that now a little bit with alabama and this offense that they're running with Tua, obviously they're putting up more points than they ever have before, but their defense isn't as good. And there's a number of reasons for that, but I think obviously the quicker you score, the more you score, the more your defense is on the field, the more fatigue they get, the more susceptible they are to injury, the more susceptible your offense is to injury. I mean, it's just a numbers game at a certain well, point. Well, and that's really, I think, what what has ulti- what ultimately did Chip Kelly in the NFL, right? He, tr- yeah. he wanted to bring the Oregon offense out there. And the problem is the NFL with a 53-man ro- roster is much different than when college when you have 85 scholarship guys. Uh, you, you do not have the same type of depth. And then, and where you really get punished is if you can't capitalize on offense and then you, and you've done it so quickly and your, and your defense is out there. And that's what killed, uh, even Chip Kelly's Oregon teams in the games that they lost were quick three and outs and putting the defense on the field for 40 or 42 minutes a game that nobody can sustain that. 
Yeah, and especially when you're playing another really good team who's doing the exact same thing, but they just have a little more depth on defense, you know. And I, and honestly, I think that's what we saw with Clemson uh, against Alabama last year in the in the national championship game. So you know, I, I think that it's a it's a double edged sword. Yes, it's good to run more spread. Yes, it's good to give these quarterbacks more of a chance. But how does it affect your defense? And you know, how's it eventually? affect your team and, and wins and losses. So it's something to continue to watch here as, as we get into the weekend. But that's my interesting. Let's go in the book. Uh, who do you like on Saturday? So on Saturday, there, there are a handful of games um, that I like there, and I'll, I'll kind of run through them. Actually, I do kind of like – I don't know that I'll play this in our pool where we pick five, but I, I do like Utah uh, laying four at USC. I, I think, think that's a that, super interesting game on Friday night. I think it's a very interesting game. I think USC still undeniably has more talent than Utah does. Um, But now Keaton Slovis faces by far the toughest defensive front he's seen yet. And granted, it was his first road start last week, but he struggled against BYU. And Utah is going to be twice the defense that BYU was. So I, I think that BYU's defense can win this game and win it going away now. BYU it needs to have their quarterback step up as well, which has been kind of a mixed bag for them over the last couple of years. So I could see it being a, a, a lower good. scoring. He's not. I could see it being a lower scoring game, um, but I, I kind of lean towards Utah there. Um, the other games that I like, I really like Colorado uh, getting eight and a half at ASU. ASU is coming off a huge win at uh, Michigan State, which yeah. may, you can argue whether they did or didn't deserve to win that game, and it was a really ugly game. But I don't think Arizona State's a touchdown better than anybody, and I think Colorado's going to be salty coming in after an overtime loss to Air Force. Um, I think Colorado is probably as good as ASU. That line just feels way, way, way too big to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like I like the Ducks laying ten and a half down on the farm, and I didn't until this morning. When on our radio show, we got to talk to Todd Husack, the uh, Stanford former quarterback and yeah, color commentator great. for their Stanford radio network. He's really great, and he was really honest. And without being condescending, he was really down on his team. I guess they only have seven healthy offensive linemen on the entire roster. This <laughs> week, they will be starting two f- true freshmen on the O-line. Um, they've had they've lost their... Um, all-American candidate left tackle for the season. Um, and they basically, the interesting he, thing he said is that for many years, they had one guy that could kind of bring them back in games and help them hang around. It was, you know, first it was Toby Gerhardt, then it was Andrew Luck, then it was uh, Christian McCaffrey, and then it was Bryce Love. They don't have a guy right now that they can just lean on. And right now the sum of their parts is not good enough to hang with a team that's as fast as Oregon. And uh, they got totally exposed by UCF last week. So after thinking that it was going to be double digits was too much on the farm, I listened to Husack this morning, and I'm pretty convinced that Oregon can win that game big. Um, and then the last one that I really like is Washington State laying 18 and a half at home against UCLA. That game is on the Palouse. What a lie, that game, that game is at it's a huge UCLA fucking I mean god damn Ryan they are so, a fucking disaster so in addition to it being at Washington State and at night and I really believe Michael and it is sad to say this I think the UCLA has already quit on Chip Kelly and he may have even quit on them it looks like such a bad marriage a year and a half in they they don't look remotely competitive and if they don't show up 
with the mentality. If they if they come out as flat as they did in their last three games up in Pullman at night in front of a rocking crowd, and then here's the kicker. Gardner Minshew is going to be in Pullman, the guy who's basically Jesus in Pullman, Washington now. Uh, and Clay Thompson is supposed to be in Pullman. Ooh. So that crowd is going to be lit. I think it's going to be a huge night for Wazoo, and I think they win by four touchdowns. Okay. Good picks. You know, I've got a lot of picks written down here. And when I looked at the lines when they came out on Sunday, I didn't love that many. I'm not saying I like all these. I just find all of these interesting. Uh, I'm going to go. I've got two actual. No, I'm going to make it three. Here's my three real picks, and then I'm just going to talk about some others. So, and I should backtrack. My three plays are Colorado, Oregon, and I, I missed it on my list. Northwestern. They're getting nine I at like home against well. a Michigan State team yeah. who cannot score. Yeah. I think that this game could be 3 nothing. I think this game could be 6-3. Neither team is a touchdown better and uh, Pat Fitzgerald is 4-1-1 one, one as a home underdog in his last six. So give me, so my, the three plays of mine are Northwestern, Colorado, and Oregon. Those are the definite ones I'm going with. Okay. My three plays are Texas A&M laying three and a half at Kyle Field against Auburn. Uh, I like Western Michigan catching five against my lowly Syracuse Orange. I've actually got Sports Center on and Scott Van Pelt in his winner's uh, segment, just picked Western Michigan to win. Nice. I agree. They will win. They will beat Syracuse. And I don't think it will even be close. We suck. Uh, and wow. Then the, the other one that I like, and, and actually Van Pelt put this up too, uh, is Appalachian State getting two and a half mm-hmm. in Chapel Hill. I think they will beat the Tar Heels. The Tar Heels, those opening week lot wins, I think were a little bit of a mirage. I watched a lot of that game against Wake Forest last Friday night. I don't think they're that good. I don't think Matt Brown's that good of a coach, although he is recruiting really well. I was looking at the recruiting rankings the other night, and I think UNC's top 10 nationally right now, which is pretty amazing. But give me App State this week. Those are my three. Uh, I actually had App State on my list, not confident enough to lock it in as a play, but uh, I like them too. Okay, and and I, I like Northwestern too, but I don't like it as much as those three. But I agree with you, Northwestern. Here's some others. This is just a spread that I couldn't believe. I don't even know which side I want. But Indiana, okay, who just got their asses totally kicked at home for Ohio State. It was a big spread. They didn't come close to covering it. They are a 27.5-point favorite against UConn. I mean, how fucking bad must UConn be, Ryan? They might be the worst team in all of college football. I mean, Maybe, no, That's probably God. UMass. Unbelievable. I can't believe that Indiana's favored over, you know, a name school by 27 and a half. Uh, I also like, I would lean towards Buffalo getting 14 against Temple. Temple coming off the big win against Maryland. I'd take those two, the two touchdowns. It's a lot of points. And then the other game that I'm just looking forward to, you know, it's interesting. I'm, as I, I think I, said, I know where you're going with this. Go I'm going to be in Vegas. Um, and the 9 a.m. slate is absolutely loaded, almost comically so. There's almost nice. like very few games at 12.30, um, and they're just the 9 a.m. slate is crazy. I mean, the freaking music festival I'm going to doesn't end till 1 a.m. I'm going to have to be in the sports book eight hours later. I don't know how <laughs> that's going to work, but I'm, 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 I'm going to try and figure it out. Because both Alabama and the Qs play at 9 a.m., but there's a bunch of other good games too, including the game I'm getting to, Michigan-Wisconsin. I think that's going to be a great game. 
I'm really looking forward to seeing it. You know, Harbaugh. That's where is I thought under, you were going. Har Harbaugh's under a ton of pressure, man. He hasn't won a single. I think he's 0 and seven at Michigan as a as an underdog straight up. So in other words, every game he's been an underdog in, he's lost the game. So he's mm -hmm. a three and a half point underdog in Madison. I don't really know who I like. Uh, I'm kind of like what Stanford Steve and the Bears said on their show, which we both love. Uh, you know, I'm I can't pick Michigan at this point in a game like this until until they prove me otherwise. So there's just no reason for me to trust them. They've had a bye week. You know, we don't know who's going to start at quarterback. Wisconsin's looked great against inferior opponents. Really tough place to play. I hate how Fox is putting this game now on at noon Eastern. It's on at 11 a.m. local in Madison. That's too early for a game of mm -hmm. this magnitude. I agree. It's ludicrous. I agree. It's ludicrous. I, I think just being so afraid of going up against the SEC at 3.30 East to me is chicken shit by Fox. And it, and it sucks for the fans. Sucks for everybody. I, I don't understand the move. But I do want to watch the game. Um, and then the other game I, I'm interested in is uh, – I mean, obviously, I want to see Notre Dame, Georgia, but also at, at night, I guess 4.30 West Coast time is Texas and Oklahoma State. I mm -hmm. just feel like that's always a great game whenever they get together. Yeah, it's a recipe for a good one. <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, the Cowboys have gone in and won four straight in Austin. This is probably the best Texas team has had in that span. So I'm just looking to be a shootout. What's game. the over-under there? Do we know? <coughs> Excuse me. I think it's like 73. Yeah, it's, it's that a, sounds like a freaking shootout, man. I, I would be excited for that one, too. Yeah. So, those are all games that I have my eye on. Um, God, I need a drink of water. <laughs> well, What's your wild card? I, I can no, go no, ahead and transition to the NFL. NFL. Sorry, if, NFL. Uh, so, with in the NFL, they're just, there are, a, I think it's a tough week of picks. I think the line is uh, the lines are really tough. I'll tell you the two that I, I really love. Um, and, and that is Seattle laying four at home to the saints. I just, I don't have a lot of faith in Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, I don't, I mean, Taysom Hill hasn't really taken that many snaps, um, under center or as, as the, the main trigger man of that offense, they're going to play both. And, you know, there's the old adage, if you don't have two quarterbacks or, or if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. And, uh, I just think the first start after losing a guy like Breeze is a, is a really tough one on the offense, just getting used to someone else's rhythm and cadence and all that. I really think the best answer for New Orleans would be on offense would be Alvin Kamara getting him the ball. But Seattle has two of the best linebackers in the entire league in Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright. I think they can contain that. Uh, and and I, I think Seattle wins this game by a touchdown. So I really like that one. And then uh, additionally, I like the Rams just laying three. At Cleveland, I think there's still too much public hype on Cleveland. I think they're overvalued right now. I think the Rams are still really good. I think that Sean McVay is a way better coach than Freddie Kitchens. That's not a slight to Kitchens. I just think McVay is one of the best and a cut above. And then on top of it, because of that breeze injury last week, the Rams kind of got to go into cruise control at the end of their last game. I think they're going to be well-rested, whereas even though the Browns got to cruise to victory, the Browns are coming off a short week. And even though they won 23-3, I didn't think the Browns looked great against the Jets. And that's a Jets team that's not supposed to be very good. So I really love the Rams and I love the Seahawks. A couple other games that I'm kind of leaning towards. I kind of like Arizona, minus two too. and a half. Um, that line has moved a ton, obviously, because of Cam Newton being uh, doubtful for that one. But I think 
in staying close with Baltimore last week, and we referenced the poor decision making uh, that Kingsbury made in inside the five yard line, uh, and the way they came back on Detroit after sorting out the kinks in the first half of the first game. I think they're ready to pick up their first win of the year, and if they can't do it against a, just a a reeling Panthers team that seems like it's dysfunctional. I mean, Ron Rivera stormed out of a press conference two and a half minutes in today because he was tired of answering Cam Newton questions. It just, it doesn't sound like things are going great there. So I think Arizona, it scares me for them to be a favorite, but, but I like them. And then, uh, you know, I'm kind of leaning towards Dallas. They could be the best team in the NFC. Their competition hasn't been great so far in that they've played the giants and the Redskins and, they were going to be inevitably at the bottom of their division. But as a friend of mine said uh, today, until Miami doesn't lose by 40, you have to pick against them. Uh, so that line is 22 and a half, which seems like a ton. But Miami has proven to us they have no interest of even being competitive. Um, so I, I kind of, I'm kind of leaning towards Dallas there. And then uh, and finally, it's hard to bet on for the Washington Redskins, but they're a four-point home dog against Chicago. And I think Chicago's in the weeds a little bit. I, I don't think they have their offense humming along. I think their defense has lost uh, a little bit of a step from last year, at least so far. And uh, I'm not so sure that Washington can't pick up their first win of the season. I mean, I don't think Washington's going winless, and uh, this seems like a winnable home game. They're getting points, so I kind of like them. But the two that I really like are, are Seattle and are the Rams. Okay. Uh, good, good stuff. I agree with you on Arizona totally. Uh, it's at two and a half now. I think that's going to go up. Mm-hmm. I might have to get on that right when I get to the hotel tomorrow before it goes up even more. The other one I like is Detroit getting six at Philadelphia. I actually think Detroit's kind of good. Um, and Philly, as we said earlier, is decimated by injuries. Um, I'll take a flyer on the Lions plus six. I think it's interesting to to your point about the Dallas pick. Uh, both they and the Pats are 20-plus point favorites. I think it's the first time in the history of the NFL we've had two 20-plus point favorites on the same week. And over the course of, of the last 40 years in the NFL, teams favored by 20 or more are 0 and 8 against the spread, which is just a staggering number, really. Mm. Uh, I don't know who I really like in either of those games, but just... <laughs> uh, food for thought. Um, and yeah. I just, you know, I look at the rest of the slate, nothing else really jumps out at me. I'm sure it's by a the tough time, week, man. Yeah, I, I'm sure by the time I sit there in the book and stare up at that wall for a few hours, something will hit me. <laughs> It'll probably be the wrong move, but something will hit me. But that, that's really all I got. Um, so, good in the book segment. I'm fine to actually be in the book tomorrow. For that USC game. And also, I'm going to get to see, maybe see my Braves clinch the NL East for the second straight year, which they have the chance to do tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, what's your wild card? Uh, my wild card comes on the heels of Gardner Minshew winning his first uh, his first start as an NFL starter mm-hmm. tonight. And uh, just such a unique name, Gardner Flint Minshew II, uh, which kind of got me on this jag of just good sports names, unique sports names. What are some of your favorites? And if you, if you need a minute to rack your brain, I, I've put a couple down over the years. But I, I love a unique name that is easy to become a household one and whether Gardner Minshew plays eight more weeks or, or eight more years, um, it's a name that I think that people will still say 20 years from now because it's memorable. Favorite sports names ever. 
Not nicknames, actual names, right? Yeah, name or just or just good sports names. They could be fun. Okay. They could be unique. I mean, whatever. The one that immediately um, comes to mind is one of my favorite players ever, uh, Natron Means. I I just think that's a great. Name. Ooh, good one. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. Yeah, it just it sounds it it sounds like the the kind of it sounds like what he was. It kind of like almost epitomized him, if that makes sense. It does. <laughs> totally agree. The other one that I liked, and this was more of a, uh, and, and this guy was in the same exact mold of Natron, but really, this was one of those guys whose nickname almost became his regular name. Um, mm-hmm. So this is it's cheating a little bit, but I loved Craig Ironhead Hayward. Oh, uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that was a great mm-hmm. one. And who can forget that commercial he did where he's in the shower and he's saying, it's like, hey, Ironhead, what's with this thingy? Remember? Do you remember that? <laughs> I do not remember that. We got you. Got to look it up on YouTube. Oh, one of the great all-time <laughs> sports commercials. Um, who else, man? So I've got a couple. Well, while you Go rack ahead. your brain, Let but me um, so from from basketball, I've always thought the name Jamal Mashburn just sounded so cool. It sounded like a guy that was like gonna block shots and do a ton Mash. of dunking, which it, which is what he did. Um, baseball has so many good ones over the years. I always really loved uh, the Cincinnati Reds middle infielder Pokey Reese. I thought was a great, great name. Um, and I don't know that Pokey was his actual first name. Much like Buster Posey isn't Buster Posey's first name, but it's it's it is because that's what. It is on every roster and jersey, and you know it just sounds like a baseball name. Same with Coco Crisp, uh, another really good one. And then a couple of guys we worked with that kind of fit their personas: Shooty Babbitt, great name. Bip Roberts, Bip is a Bip Roberts. Like it just it fits. Oh, and then you've got some old throwbacks like Oil Can Boyd and Ca- Candy Maldonado. Um, I mean, you mentioned a couple earlier in the show with Mouse Davis and Tiger Ellison. Those are great names. I love Mouse Davis. But see, these are all nicknames that kind of became but, their actual name. Sure, sure. Yeah. But like, it's I mean, it's it's how they were referred to in their sports. So like, I mean, and it's not like I mean, it's not like saying Gary Payton is like Glove Payton or something like that. But like, right. Buster Posey goes in a lineup card as Buster Posey, just like Magic Johnson. Sure. Even though his name is Irvin, was was Magic Johnson. But yeah. then I also liked just the sound of. Uh, well, he went by Tim, but the full name was Tishmanga Biaka Batuka. Loved him. Uh, great name. And then uh, additionally, and I'm going to have Michigan, to right. Um, yeah, Michigan. Yeah, Michigan, yeah, Michigan running back. So and then the other one, I've always thought Serge Ibaka was a really cool name. Agreed. And uh, and then, but but his full name is. Hold on, let me find it now. Uh, if you've got others, you can hit me with them when I as I pull it up. Uh, but it okay. is. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. go ahead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Let's see here. It is. <laughs> Serge Balu, Lamu, Sayanga, Loom, Walahas, Jonas, Hugo, Ibaka. Wow. That is Thank his full name. That. Obviously, he just goes by Serge, but yeah. it's Serge Balu, Lamu, Sayanga, Loom, Walahas, Jonas, Hugo, Ibaka. Okay, good ones. Uh, a few have come to mind. Uh, going back a lot of years, the baseball player Dave Kingman was just mm-hmm. a good one. He was just a. Uh, you know, one of the original all-or-nothing, either home run or strikeout guys. He, you know, hit 40 and maybe even 50 in one year. But Kingman, good name for a big-time masher. Um, a few others. Um, 
I was also just thinking about some of the gunslinger quarterback ones. Like a lot of the guys who've played for Mike Leach have have names like that, like Gardner Minshew, um, or like Texas Tech, like like Baker Mayfield is just a great quarterback name. As was Cliff Kingsbury, and like you go way back in time, Sonny Six Killer. I love some of those good quarterback names that just sound like a guy who's meant to go there and wing the ball around. Yeah, and you know, to go more macro. LeBron James uh, really fits him. Yeah, that's a you know, great and, name. And the fact yeah. that you you know you can make that into King James, which he did at an early age. You know, the whole thing mm-hmm. just fits. I just LeBron and just the one name LeBron. Yeah, it's, it's just, just a great yeah. name for who he is. It's almost mm-hmm. like too good to be true, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, there's there's some others, but I think we've we've plowed this ground fairly thoroughly. Certainly, we could go on, but. In the interest of time, I think, <laughs> I think we've plowed it pretty thoroughly. Do you All have right. a wild card? I have a wild card. Yes, I do. Hold on. I'm going to jot down the time, and then I'm going to give you my wild card. So, obviously, been thinking about a lot, my, a lot about my trip to Vegas tomorrow and spending a weekend in the sports book. I, I just love being in the sports book, man. I really do. It's a, it's a, it's a, spending the whole football Saturday in the sports book is one of my favorite activities. And I was just kind of taking a trip down memory lane. And I was going to ask you, what is one or two of your favorite sports book memories? Mm. Good question. Um, I've got a couple. Okay, good. Um, but, <laughs> but one of my first ones was my first ever trip to Vegas with friends. I'd been once with uh, my mom and my brother when I just turned 22. So, like, we went to the tables and, like, we we went to a show and we went to dinner and like, you know, did all the kind of tame Vegas things. But the first time you go with your friends and you're staying out till 6am and, right. you know, and having those 15 Miller lights you talked about, it's a, it's a different story, but it, we went, uh, and actually I have two stories from this trip. We went for the Las Vegas bowl when Oregon was going to play, uh, BYU. We got our asses kicked. I think 38 to six was the final score or something like that. But, um, point being, we just wanted to bet on something at, at the sports book and uh, because we'd never laid a bet down there before. And right. there was never a, laid a, a bowl, legal bet. There was a bowl game on like the day or two before Oregon's game. And because the Vegas bowl was like the sixth bowl for the PAC 12 that year, we were there. It was like right before Christmas. It was like the 23rd. There was not really very much going on at all. So it was like Navy against Northern Illinois or something like that. Just a bad bowl game that we had no business betting on. Uh-huh. And we each go up, like me and a buddy, we go and we, I think we bet the over. Uh, I don't even remember what the over was, but we each had like a $10 ticket. And the over hits and we are just losing our minds. And it takes us about 30 seconds to realize that there are some other gentlemen in the sports book who've had, had a lot more money on the over, and they are none too thrilled with our celebrations over our little chump change bet. And so uh, it's something you, you learn <laughs> that uh, it's uh, – I think anything's fair game as far as cheering for your own bets, but we didn't really think about uh, how much that might have stung for some others at that point in time. I also heard – uh, during that trip, it was uh, I had just finished working uh, for Oregon football, and uh, I, I knew a handful of people on the staffs, including one of the um, graduate assistants. And I called him up, or I, I was texting him before I got to Vegas, just asking him 
like how things were, you know, how, how things were going. And he's like, <laughs> he basically said, I don't know if these guys are ready to ready to play. Uh, and like, they're, they're, they're way too into this Vegas thing. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, I'm not going to bet on Oregon then. And, and we, me and my two buddies, we, we had a really nice run at the craps table the first night we were there. And every couple hours, they just kept going back to the sports book to put like another hundred bucks on Oregon. I'm like, guys, I don't, I don't think, like, I want them to do well, but we were like, you know, a four point favorite. We got blasted by 30. And I knew ahead of time not to. Uh, and then just the last one, probably my favorite one was a, uh, <laughs> just a good win. Um, it, it was because it was, Maybe the most balls I've had to put a, a bigger bet out. I usually don't bet in very big increments, but I was in college at the time. It was March Madness, and Butler was uh, was playing. Or maybe it was, it was post college. Butler was playing Kansas State in the Elite Eight, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a five versus a two matchup. And Butler was two t- plus two twenty on the money line, and I felt really good about them winning that game. They ended up winning that game. They ended up going on to lose to Duke right. in the final on that Gordon Hayward last second shot but uh, I laid 200 bucks down at uh, on Moneyline for Butler plus 220 and as a kid right out of school that was a nice little payday because uh, it was a a little bit scary to put that much when I didn't have that much disposable income good one good hit good hit on that ML I like that Um, those are good ones Um, a couple that stick out for me I remember I was in there one me my family and I went one March Madness. I think it was when I was just out of college, similar to you, uh, and we were in there for the first weekend of March Madness. And I remember sitting in there with my dad when Kansas, as a two seed, took a real tough L to fifteen seeded Bucknell, and there was mm. about eight or nine Kansas looked to be current students. Maybe they were just out of college. You know, all decked out in their Kansas gear. It was, it was. I remember it was a like it was the last session of the day, and they had gotten in there at like nine a.m. to save seats, much as me and my dad had, and we had been in there together the whole day. You know, like twelve, mm-hmm. fourteen hours, and you know they were drunker than hell, and just watching them be super miserable losing to Bucknell, uh, that was pretty entertaining. That was one memory. Um, another memory. I have is okay. This is a pretty good one. So, three, <laughs> three years ago, same weekend, uh, I went to this Life is Beautiful festival in downtown Vegas. And I remember Cuse had the same as this weekend, 9 a.m. game against someone not very good. And me and my buddy Scott, we went to college together. We roll out of bed in time for kickoff to watch this game. And, you know, we had not slept much at all. And, uh, we're sitting in there, and the sports book's pretty empty. Life is beautiful weekend at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. I mean, it was like us and like two other guys, and they were sitting real close to us, and we could kind of hear every word that they were saying. And it, I was kind of, you know, eavesdropping on them, and it was very clear they were not watching college football at all. They were not really even watching anything. They were just breaking down WNBA lines, and... For, for the following night's for that night's action, and I overheard one of them talking about how the William Hill book, which of which we were in, you know, they're like a conglomerate that runs a lot of the sports books around Vegas. They were saying that William Hill was now on to their strategy on betting <laughs> WNBA first half spreads that they couldn't use their strategy anymore because William Hill was on to them. 
And I was I just, vaguely I was yeah, blown I vaguely away. remember you actually sharing this story with me at one point and there was like a there was a little nugget in there about like they thought that maybe over at Bally's they might not be onto him just yet or something. There was yeah, like one true. one last bastion of and like, so they a, oh, left. we can still get a half-point advantage here. Yes, they left. They <laughs> left the book after about an hour of breaking down WNBA spreads because Amazing. they figured that this book was no longer good for them and they went somewhere else. So that was a, a fun one. But without a doubt, the best sports book memory I've ever had was I went to Vegas for the Alabama-Georgia championship game, just kind of, you know, decided to go to Vegas basically for one night to watch the game. And what a great decision that was. We watched that epic game, you know, the one where Tua hits the walk-off touchdown to Devontae Smith in overtime. Mm -hmm. Uh, Watched that at the famous Westgate Sportsbook, which is really the best sports book I've ever been in. They've redone it the last couple years, and they've got, like, huge, almost, like, movie screen TVs all over the book. Uh, And that was just an amazing game to be in a sports book in that environment. And uh, that's my number one sports book memory. That is awesome. Yeah, I I think – I don't know that I've been in the book for a big win for my team that I had money riding on, but that that would be quite the thrill. Yeah, I think that was the only one, really, that I can – you know, I've seen – some Alabama games and whatnot in the sports book, but that was, you know, the only one where I've been in, in a sports book for like a championship type game. So that, that was totally awesome, but hopefully more good memories will be made this weekend. And I look forward to recapping next week with you. Yeah. I'm excited for the recap, my man. All right. Well, enjoy the game. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck to the ducks down on the farm. And I'll talk to you next week. All right, man. All right. Good night, everybody. Sleep tight. Good night, y'all.